When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places, it's all here. I'm Marissa Luck, real estate reporter at Houston Chronicle. Master plan communities are playing an increasingly important role in housing younger and middle-aged families who are often priced out of urban cores or simply feel like they can't find good value in the existing home sales market because the supply is just too dang tight. So where are these home buyers going? Many people are looking for new homes, and many of these new homes are in master plan communities. Sales of new homes grew 11.8% year over year in April, the fifth straight month of increases for new home sales at a time when the rest of the home sales market has been a little slow. But even though new home construction and master plan communities plays a critical role in providing housing, new home construction of any type carries a carbon footprint. And communities located in far-flung corners of cities contribute to more people driving around and needing cars, which has its own emissions. At the same time, master plan community developers are trying to find ways to build more sustainably. They're also trying to manage resources like water and desert climates like Nevada and Arizona, or planning against the risk of flooding in places like Houston. So how do designers and developers go about planning the future of these massive communities that are kind of like their own mini cities? How do urban planners effectively respond to the growing risk of climate change and housing affordability concerns while also making these communities actually like cool, pleasant places to live? I recently hosted a panel discussion exploring these questions at the National Association of Real Estate Editors Conference in Las Vegas in early June. I spoke with three experts on master plan communities design and development. The panel included Robert Acuna Pilgrim of TBG Partners, a landscape architecture firm that has worked at master plan communities such as Harvest in Argyle, Texas, and Easton Park in Austin as well as John Saxon, Chief of Staff at Howard Hughes, the Houston developer behind communities like the Woodlands in Bridgeland, as well as the Summerlin community in Las Vegas, and Terra Vellis in Phoenix, that is expected to eventually become the largest master plan community in Arizona. The panel also included Nate Cherry, Director of Urban Planning at the Los Angeles office of global architecture firm Ginsler, who has championed the concept of affinity districts as a way to create a sense of community in dense projects or mixed-use areas. 
I thought this was a great assemblage of experts, so I wanted to share the discussion with our Looped-In audience. Please bear with me as this audio was recorded on the scene in the conference, so it isn't exactly studio quality. But thanks to some expert editing from Scott Kingsley, it will still be a good listen. If you're curious about who's speaking, John Saxon with Howard Hughes responds to my first question. Then Robert Acuna Pilgrim of TBG Partners responds, and then Nate Cherry of Ginsler chimes in later on in the discussion. We talk about major demographic shifts and migration driving these communities, how remote and hybrid work patterns are altering how residents interact with these communities, and even how a herd of goats helped with trail management and a development near Dallas. So let's dive into the discussion. So I, I wanted to start with uh, some, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but this question about uh, walkability, we see a lot of uh, in both mixed-use project, commercial and residential, this desire for more walkable spaces, more pedestrian spaces. But at the same time, a lot of these master plan communities are not connected to public transportation. You sort of need a car to live there. So how do you go about, you know, when you're thinking about these communities, how do you go about designing around walkability while also like keeping the car in mind? You know, it's an interesting topic today. And I think that that walkability enhances the, the vibrancy of the community. It, it connects it. And really, you know, at Howard Hughes, what we try to do, uh, you know, as far as development goes, is to create a place where people can have this live, work, play environment and they can do everything they, they want to do all in one cohesive location. So walkability, having, having amenities uh, throughout the community, uh, integrated and in strategic locations. So having your retail and having tenants that are where a consumer can have an experience. While at the same time, having that office, uh, you know, a stone's throw away, and then finishing the day and going back to your home uh, all in one place is, is really what it's all about. And, you know, Marissa, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, having a car, but still having the, the walkability. I think that uh, what we see today is commutes play a big part in all of this. And coming back into the office and, the average commute in America is just under an hour. But in the Woodlands, which is one of the communities that, that we develop uh, at Howard Hughes, the commute's seven minutes. And so we, what we've seen is more activity where people want to get out. They want to go back into the office. They want to go grab lunch with a colleague or with their family during the day. And then during the weekend, when you have all of these uh, offerings, these commercial offerings, the whole community is activated to where at a point during the week, it's full, and on the weekends, it's full. So you have a full seven-day activation where people want to be. And we're making every attempt to organize those activities, that amenity-rich community around the open space or around the natural features of the community. Uh, sometimes they're natural features that are created by humans. We have a in one of our projects in North Texas, there is a gas line that runs through the property. And we took the homes instead of, traditionally backing those homes to that, that gas line, we fronted it with a boulevard on either side of it. It made it a several mile long pathway, walkway. So we took something that would have been seen as a liability and made it into an amenity within the community. What, what community is that? That is in uh, Winsong in North Texas. There's another community that's getting planned outside of Houston where they're actually going to, they're actually experimenting with car-free zones 
which I thought was really interesting. Like they want to be able to have walkability within within their community. It's it's a pretty far away from Houston and Richmond, so you'd probably still need a car. But at least when you're there, you can walk around. And I think John, didn't you say your commute was like five minutes? Yeah, uh, by foot, not by car. Yeah. So, so John lives in this cool community in, in Texas called the Woodlands, where uh, Howard Hughes is headquartered. So. He gets to, to walk to work. I still don't get to do that yet. But <laughs> that brings us to another point, which is, you know, we've seen an increase in demand for green spaces um, and this desire for more sustainability. But as uh, Nate, I know you mentioned this when we were talking earlier, you know, um, new home construction is such a contributor to climate change. So how, how do you go about kind of balancing, you know, thinking about sustainable design and reducing carbon footprint of master plan communities while also realizing just the reality of construction is as a major contributor. The number one thing in terms of carbon footprint, I think that we can do is really focus on human behavior. And um, it's one thing to create walkable trails and, um, you know, places to eat next to next to a super amenity and that sort of thing. But um, something that I learned from the Irvine company, and we try to apply with all our projects, is what they call affinity hubs. And so those are those are areas where there's shared interest, where people don't necessarily perceive a shared interest. So those could be around wellness or tech and science or design and culture or food production, or even creativity. So, for example, um, the, the single nurse uh, and the researcher on gerontology and the active empty nester all actually share quite a lot of interests. Um, and those, those groups can be brought together through activities. Um, and so the, the ultimate goal or the ultimate opportunity that we can learn from more established communities is how to focus on behaviors so that people are spending more time walking and connecting and less time driving and uh, being on their own. So the, the holy grail is behavior, I would say. And the way we try to approach that and reinforce that for, with a more of a greenfield mastermind community is to really think of that as a uh, nodal development. Mm -hmm. So that if transit ever can or does reach out to those communities that might be in a greenfield development this far out in the suburbs, that it is at a place, it's connecting to a place that is very walkable and connected. But so many of those communities, we're finding that with, uh, with the working, the five-day work week pivoting to more of a three-day work week, that there's those opportunities for uh, for amenity-rich communities to include things like a WeWork type of facility within the amenity centers. We have that that's been very successful at Pecan Square in uh, north of Fort Worth. And that's also a project where we've really tried to lean into some preservation of some trees on that project. There's over 200 pecan trees that were saved and created sort of an expert experience as you enter the community with the long green within that community. And then there's a lot of uh, other amenity assets that help to give you a reason to sort of park your car on the weekend when you arrive. And mm -hmm. maybe you don't crank it back up till Tuesday when you go back into your office. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and and that brings to us to another point, which is, you know, the reality is most uh, office workers are in some kind of a hybrid scenario, uh, which means that they're, you know, they're at their house more. And, and I've, I've been hearing, I don't know of the other reporters have been hearing this, but I've been hearing from retailers that, you know, they want to locate in sometimes master blank, more master blank communities or suburbs, because instead of like getting a coffee on your way to work, you might just be at home and, you know, squeeze in a coffee break it, that you want to walk five minutes to. So I'm curious how the changing kind of remote work patterns are impacting, you know, how you see your residents and the communities you, you work with. How, how is that changing how they interact with those communities? Yeah, I think it depends where regionally you're, you're looking at it. And if it's a concentrated city, so, you know, take California, for instance, you know, you, you see in the headlines that there's been this, this exodus of, of residents moving out, but also who's following, following that. It's, it's the, the corporations and the corporate relocations um, and they're, they're establishing a presence in at least what we're seeing in, in our master plan communities. And, you know, we've been a, a big beneficiary of it, and it's because it, it has that sense of, uh, you know, the walkability, the live, work, play, and people can come to these communities and they can have a more affordable lifestyle while still being afforded the same career opportunities. And so if you see this, this talent pool that's been heading out in the, the coastal markets, I mean, companies are, are taking notice because they, they need to hire these people. And there's already you know, a lot of labor constraints that we're seeing more broadly in, in today's market. And so I think having that office presence where people can come in, even if it's hybrid for now, um, you know, we are starting to see people come back more and more. Um, but I think, as you mentioned, to the, to the retail component and, and having those tenants that offer an experience, uh, we're seeing that come into play. And one of the tenants uh, that, that we've seen a lot, especially here in our community, uh, it's about seven miles away of Summerlin, we own a million square feet. We've seen a lot of tenants who were strictly e-commerce coming into the market and wanting to establish a brick and mortar presence because they want to get in front of that consumer, but they want to do it in a location where those consumers actually are. Was this the Casper... Mattress? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so that was uh, one example. So Casper mattress. Yeah, they were they were fully online uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I guess right around the end of 2020, they wanted to have that that presence, and we've seen that with several others. And where we've had retailers that were maybe more legacy and kind of dying out, they've been replaced with some of these e-commerce tenants. And we've seen an uptick in foot traffic in downtown Summerlin over the last year of, of 20 million plus visitors. That's more than Disneyland. So we've seen a huge emergence coming back in the space. The increased traffic is 20 million up? So a total of 20 million visitors uh, have come to downtown Summerlin, just the retail component, over the last year. Okay. So are you saying Summerlin's cooler than Disneyland? I mean, you said it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I guess I definitely have to check it out. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a... The impact of remote work is a fascinating topic because I think you have to look at it in a really nuanced way. There's all kinds of research from major universities that really point to hybrid work as being here to stay and something that's uh, ultimately going to be the model going forward. I think, you know, the, the days of 
you know, you could work anywhere and you decide to leave San Francisco and you go to Boise and you work remotely and then you end up getting, being the first person to be laid off in your tech job. Um, we're definitely seeing people, you know, flying away from downtown cores. That's without a doubt, I think office buildings are inadequate for the changing nature of work. But what we are seeing is, in, at least in California, those communities, um, and I think Summerlin's an excellent example, but like Irvine, that have, uh, have the infrastructure to offer, yes, a great quality of life, incredible open space, top 40 university, um, but it also has an ecosystem of suppliers, spinoffs, and newcomers in, in, in that case, in the tech space, it's the top, in the top five in tech in California. And what has happened is they have a tax surplus per person, $54,000, which is the highest of any tech hub in America, uh, and incredibly high jobs to residents ratio. So what's happening is people are, are yes, leaving urban centers, but they're moving to these great lifestyle centers that have an ecosystem of jobs in case they lose their job. They have other options and they can meet people in their communities around them. So I think that's really important. And I think towns like Summerlin are great examples of, of what people are really preferring. Great quality of life, but also an ecosystem of jobs where you have options uh, and, you know, you can meet like-minded people and, and uh, network. In some ways, it's providing an economic engine. So these master plan communities aren't just a place you live. It's also a place you can work and, and it can truly exist on its own as a mini city. Yeah, even, you know, even uh, the, the Dallas examples, you just have a tremendous employer along major corridors that make all these new communities really work, I would argue. So you need both. So even with hybrid work, you're saying it's, there's still a need for some sort of like office presence yeah, in, the, in these base. communities. You need major universities. You need technical knowledge in order to, to attract the best and brightest. It was so easy to say, you know, we can work from anywhere. But as, as you said, you know, it's not always the case. And so I think that, you know, it still needs to have some sort of connection to um, some sort of employment or be somewhat close. But at the same time, I think that the, the hybrid and remote work trend did make it possible for people to be a little bit more okay with living in suburbs or exurbs, which helps also with affordability. And so I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, we're seeing, obviously we're in a higher mortgage rate environment, affordability is an ongoing concern. So what do you see in terms of uh, how the communities that you work with are kind of trying to address affordability concerns. Um, I know that you've talked about diversity of housing stock. We see um, a lot more single family rentals. Um, there's a community that Howard Hughes has in the Houston area called Bridgeland that is doing some single family rentals. Um, so could, could you just kind of talk about how you're trying to address or how you see your, you know, your master plan community clients trying to uh, tackle this affordability issue? It's, our clients have been putting some of everything in. A community like Harvest has single family for rent. It has apartments that are slated to be part of the Where project. Where is Harvest? Or? It's uh, north of Fort Worth. Okay. Uh, it has uh, homes in it that 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 are single family for rent. It has townhomes. It has detached homes. 
varying varieties of price points as well as square footages and really trying to address uh, a community's needs. And most of our master plan communities that we're working on are approaching it with that, not a one-size-fits-all, but a multi-size-fits-more. A variety of housing types. Correct. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly, I would echo that. It's, for us, it's really casting a wide net. And in our communities, we have home prices starting out for that beginning entry-level home buyer all the way up to the mega millions. And so we have something for everybody. And in doing that, I mean, everybody's at a different stage in their life cycle. And everybody has you know, different affordability uh, metrics that, you know, they, that they have as far as homes go. And so having a diversity of product brings in a, a diverse amount of people into the community. Um, but I think, what, especially what we're seeing today, it goes back to, you know, economics 101 and just supply and demand. And what we've seen is this massive imbalance where there's little supply still today and still very strong demand. And over the last 50 years, we have been, well, really since, since 2008, we've had this great fall off in new home completions. Um, and so we've been under a million units a year across the country up until 2022. Um, and meanwhile, we have new household formations across the country of about a million uh, households per year. And so if you look at the data and it basically implies that we're about 4 million housing units short today across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, Does that include multifamily in it, yeah, yes, yeah, so multifamily. So it's all all residential, um, but it just shows that there's this this wide gap, and we have a lot of work to do to to catch up on that. And you know, then you factor in things like interest rates and, and affordability. And I think that when that happens, and you have these spikes that that uh, hinders affordability, um, people what we've seen is they they take a pause and they don't say, "Well, no, I'm not going to buy a home anymore." They just say, "Okay, well, let me see where where." It kind of settles out. Uh, maybe they have to step down from the five hundred thousand dollar home to the four hundred fifty thousand, or, or as, as we were saying earlier, maybe instead of a four bedroom, it's a three bedroom uh, to adjust. But they still need to to buy that home. And so for us, it's offering that affordability across a wide range, so that everyone can get that home that they need. But I would I would also argue that this diversity of product. This connection to open space, the the walkability, all of the things we're talking about is building community. And it's what really builds a lasting, more sustainable community because it's not based on one product type or one one type of buyer. It's really built almost like the communities that organically grew at a much slower approach. And, and, And the other thing that bringing on all of those different products, attack, uh, selling to and marketing to multiple people, it helps the developer burn through that land quicker, get out from under the note that he's carrying on that land so that the project becomes more profitable so that they can move, move on to the next project is sooner, quicker. So, Nate, I'm kind of curious, with some of the projects you've worked on in, on the West Coast, yeah. I mean, is I, I guess like I just associate... California is like, you know, my sister-in-law's like paid, you know, over 800,000 for a 1970s townhome in Pasadena, you know, like people just can't afford places. So I'm kind of curious what role are master plan communities in sort of addressing the, the need for affordable housing and better? 
Well, a couple thoughts about that. One, one observation in California is there's a missing middle scale uh, development, which is by far going to get you the most density and the most affordability, which is that, you know, five to seven story product that we all love when we go to see, you know, when we go to Paris or London, and it's that very walkable block structure that creates an incredibly dense uh, blocks that, you know, have, you know, eyes on the street and so on. I also think that there's a real misconception in California about affordability and actually Tom Cox and, and Kelly Farrell, who are going to be talking in the next uh, session are experts on this, but, you know, the most sophisticated cities integrate uh, affordable housing into their luxury product as a percentage. So you go to Chicago, high-rise residential has, you know, some affordable product built into it as required, as, as required by the entitlement, which is really important because it's basically seamless. It's integrated into every housing product. Mm -hmm. It's really the sophisticated, I would argue, the sophisticated way of doing it as opposed to that's the affordable product. Well, I think there's also challenges to that. Just yeah. before this, Robert, you were talking about... Um, there was that community that was kind of pushing back against having single-family rentals, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, we're, we often see some of the suburban towns, communities around our major cities that will push back on single-family for rent. They'll push back on multifamily. Um, and some of the single-family for rent that they're pushing back on, they're pushing back because some of the early people out the gate built what most find uh, just unpleasant, product. It was a sort of a behind the gate apartment community that's just horizontal, just a horizontal apartment community. And it really has caused the industry to have a little bit of a stub toe as they try to market to other towns. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, one other thing about that, in particular in California's progressive politics, that I think is a harbinger of what might happen across the country is they have something in California law called the Surplus Land Act, which is any municipality land that is owned that they want to uh, dispose of or, or sell, uh, they have to shop it around to affordable housing developers first. And they have the right of first refusal, which interestingly has created a chilling effect of municipalities wanting to sell its property, basically, basically holding on to it because uh, their communities don't want uh, a preponderance of affordability. So it's a little irony to our uh, state laws. But uh, so there's it's incredibly complex in California. And, uh, you know, we, we definitely have a, a real housing shortage that isn't getting any better anytime soon. So how do you go about putting in affordable type of products or attainable, you know, even if it's not capitally affordable, attainably priced products in a master plan community in a way that actually feels like natural and not just like, you know, here's a few token poor people or something. 10 times out of 10, you can identify the affordable housing component of a project. If you really look carefully, the way to, to, to do it well, and these gentlemen I'm sure do it very well is, you know, you share open spaces, you integrate the, that product so that the scale is similar to other higher quality pieces, but you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to finishes and quality of windows and that sort of thing. And, and you can tell 
but the scale, if you're not looking carefully or, or looking out for it, it's totally integrated. Mm -hmm. But um, I wouldn't say that America is in an incredibly sophisticated place about affordable housing right now. Yeah. I know that there's been a, uh, you know, with the, this diversity of housing types, we'll, you know, potentially see a, an increasing diversity in master plan communities. I mean, it sounds like that's kind of already taking place. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what are you seeing in terms of the demographic shifts in your communities? We have a few things happening. You know, we have more people interested possibly in, in living in, in these communities who maybe previously lived in an urban core, so people kind of moving out. And then we also have, of course, the Sunbelt migration, uh, which, you know, in Texas, we've, that's in, in Nevada, you know, it's really, really impacted us. So uh, what are you seeing in terms of the demographic shifts that are happening in your communities now? And how is that kind of changing the character of your communities and how you go about planning? So I, I think for us, what we're seeing is that all of our communities, we do have a ton of diversity, but when we look at it, uh, what we're seeing overall is that our communities are growing faster in population. They're getting smarter. They're more educated relative to their surrounding metro regions and across the U.S. more broadly. And so a good example is in the Woodlands. So we're, we're just north of Houston. Uh, we've seen the average age of our resident remain flat for essentially the last 12 years. Meanwhile, Houston and, uh, and the U.S. more broadly is getting older. And so when I first saw that stat, I said, okay, well, you know, people in the Woodlands are just having a lot more kids. And in fact, the average household size has stayed pretty flat as well. And so what that means is that younger people are coming into the community. They're well-educated. And just as we were touching on earlier, to have a, a job hub and have companies here with an office presence is huge. And so... Younger, more educated people in our communities, that's saying, you know, that's the workforce. That, that's people who, who want these jobs and the companies are there. And so in the Woodlands, just sticking with that, um, you know, there's 1.5 jobs per rooftop. And there's more people that commute into the Woodlands than out of it for work. And so I think that, uh, you know, that having those companies plays a big part of it and is why we see the demographics as they are. Schools and education play a huge role in master plan communities as mm -hmm. well, to the point that sometimes the the developer will donate that land for that. Because they first, just want to have the school there. Because they want that first elementary school. They may even help seed uh, some sort of uh, school if, if, if they need a private school within that community to get that school, they, to get that walkable place for you to take your, your child as far as an elementary school. Even in a bad school district, and you can put bad in quotes, once you have a school in your master plan community where your residents are the people who are feeding that school as well as mentoring the everyone around it, that school typically elevates that school district. Mm -hmm. So it, it's usually a good thing for not only the community, but the greater community as well to have those schools within those master plan communities. Mm. And I think with the, the increase of younger families, as you mentioned, um, you know, it's just part of the general population growth that a lot of these master plan communities are talking about. And, and this is like 
all of these, how many, Summerlin has like 100,000 yeah, residents? 100,000. Yeah, so these are like legit, yeah, you know, towns. Uh, so, you know, with that, that's putting more strain on a lot of the resources in these communities. Uh, you know, in Nevada and Arizona, it's more about water management. In Houston, it's like we have too much water, <laughs> you know, and risk, you know, and managing flood risk. Uh, so, so what are you seeing in terms of sort of creative solutions in the communities you work with, creative solutions to managing resources? In projects that we're working on regularly, you know, there are purple pipe systems and solar arrays on rooftops and incentives for EV charging and um, mobility incentives for first and last mile and and so on that go that you know are, are just part and parcel of what the community expects. Um, but it's usually an education thing. Um, Certain uh, level of attainment that demands those those kinds of of uh, considerations. Food production is huge. Um, vertical farming and uh, agri-hoods are really important to a lot of the communities we work in. Um, and so it's a layered approach. And you know, if if you don't have a number of initiatives, uh, sometimes a dozen or more initiatives that are focused on. You know, carbon footprint and um, and really behavior modeling that allows people to really feel good about the community they're living in. Then, um, you know, you're, you're you're just another community, especially especially in a place like California where environmental concerns are, are you know top of mind. They, you know, the uh, you're. Regardless of political persuasion, environmental initiatives almost always pass in California statewide and also locally. And we have a project in development in Denton, Texas called Cole Ranch that uh, the developer is creating its own water company that will actually manage all of the water, water of the uh, open spaces, amenity spaces, as well as the water of the individual home residents. So all of that will be managed within that one company. Uh, that same project, we're really trying to turn the open space infrastructure into amenities. So you know, if, if you can have that runoff water, just run across some open space and green space before it gets into the water system. It has most of 90% of those impurities will be pulled out of that water before it gets into the creeks and systems. Uh, this That's the same project that I had told you about, that that there is a highway that's planned by the, uh, the local transportation plan, and that highway is going to go through an area where there's some really great trees. So that developer is taking it upon itself to stockpile those trees in their own tree farm and all of those trees, we've, we've, so far we've dug 150 trees that will be used in phase one. And those trees all have an eight-foot uh, root ball on them. So it's a pretty substantial yeah. tree that will be sprinkled throughout phase one. And uh, all those, uh, I'll touch on this last point, I think it's also uh, knowing your climate. So, you know, we all develop around the country. Those climates are completely different Houston and, and Vegas in particular. Pretty, pretty drastic. Uh, they, they are not the same. But you know, since we are here in Vegas, we, water is a, 
is a pretty big issue, and I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of new techniques and a lot of new technologies to make sure that water conservation, uh, you know, is at the forefront. And just here in Southern uh, Nevada, over the last decade, uh, the population has increased uh, by almost fifty percent. Water consumption per capita is down almost fifty percent over the same time period. And it's because of the integration of all these new technologies and and it being top of mind and our community of Sutherland here in Vegas, uh, we've, we've taken a similar approach to say, you know, we want to remove a lot of the, the green grass area around here. And so we've moved over the last couple of years close to nine acres of grass, which saves, uh, you know, over 20 million gallons of water a year. Um, and so it's making sure that we have drought tolerant landscaping, but that it also looks great and, and it goes with the community and really makes it a part of that natural environment. And and the, the grass is being replaced by like some kind of desert uh, So it's like the desert tolerant landscaping and plants that don't really require much water. And even, uh, so so we sell land to home builders and those home builders will build homes. We have uh, parameters with those home builders to say, hey, in Summerlin, you, know, you can't have a, a luscious green grass front yard. We have certain parameters that they have to follow so that it's suitable for the environment. Mm-hmm. Another point on kind of like resource management and trees, you, you had an interesting project I wanted you to talk about with involving the coats. <laughs> so we have a project in uh, McKinney, Texas, that that is uh, really aspiring to be different from the beginning. And part of one of its uh, design features is to really make everyone feel as though their home is the trailhead uh, within that home. So as you step out the door, you're stepping onto the trails of the community or the sidewalks that lead to the trails, lead to the open space. But this particular developer uh, for Painted Tree is really wanting to uh, be different from the beginning all the way through the process. The developer is a landscape architect turned developer. And um, so to do some of the early clearing they brought in goats and turned them loose so that they could actually get in and survey. Goats will act, they will eat the underbrush, uh, including poison ivy, without harming the goat. And, uh, <laughs> and clean it out and get it to where you can see what trees are there to be preserved and, and retained. Pretty cool. And I think that's part of, part of um, I can't remember if Robert Ewers mentioned this or, or some other folk, um, or Nate or John, but kind of like integrating this, the approach to sustainability into like sort of the, the story of your community or like the marketing. Well, certainly, I think that project has certainly done a great job of, of bringing it in as part of its marketing package or at least tooting its own horn to let people know what they're doing. But I think uh, as we talk about the the buyers being about experience, part of the experience is the story of the place and understanding why that community versus another community. Ultimately, you have to appeal to them as to why you want to bring them into Summerlin or you want to bring them into any of the other communities. And and all of those items help build that story for them to, to make that sale. But for you to get excited about being part of a place that really was thinking through the sustainable things to the point that they might have had goats. And they may even keep a small goat farm on site, post that, to be part of 
telling that story. As long as I can see a baby goat, <laughs> I'm there. Were you going to say something, Nate? Or? No, I was going to say, you know, we're working on a Circle T ranch with the wood, and it's basically the sales pitch is we're preserving the natural environment and stewarding the environment. Yes, there's there's commercial development happening and, and residential and so on, but a huge amount of land, 60%, I believe, is set aside just as natural, stewarded uh, open space uh, in perpetuity. Um, so the, the real sales pitch is, is kind of, you know, we're, we're preserving what's already here, making it um, more accessible to the community. And, and I, just real quick, I, I think that by doing that, it, it shows uh, a resident or a tenant coming into the community that you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Right. And you're not doing it just to check a box. Um, you know, you're doing it because this is the, the right thing to do for the environment, for the, for the community. And it also shows that you're here for the long term. You're, you're not here, you know, for a year or two, you're going to crank out a lot of development and leave. I mean, these communities, people are, can, can essentially live their whole lives in there, so they want to know that it will be there for the long term. So if you take that long-term thoughtful approach, uh, all the better for that resident to live there. Yeah, in some ways it seems like that kind of it would appeal to a lot of the younger families or the millennials who want to make the, you know, whatever, socially conscious choice if they can, if they're buying a new home, right? And and I think we've talked about um, part of that too is just there's sort of a hipsterization of the suburbs that have been happening and where like there's one community in Houston that rebranded Springwoods Village is where Exxon has its campus, rebranded itself as City Place. It is nowhere, like it doesn't look like, a, it's not like downtown, but you know, that that's kind of the, the idea is that we have everything that you would maybe get in a downtown. Um, so I don't know if you're, if you're seeing kind of that that thought process um, go into you know, like you're planning it all. If you're thinking about like um, trying to have more like cool things that would be like kind of make it feel like more urban like, or is it just kind of like okay, we always know we're going to be a suburb. It's more just about quality of life and having. Nice yeah, no, we're we're definitely seeing that, and more recently, we recently brought. Uh, Kirby Ice House to, to Houston, and now it's uh, the, the, the longest bar in Texas. So uh, it's like a vibey beer place. Yeah. I don't think people don't know what ice houses are, but they're they're like a yeah, yeah like a beer garden-ish. Yeah. the game, and so for us, there was a parking lot uh, that that was sitting vacant for years, and it was just spillover parking for a mall. Uh, throughout the, the pandemic and people that consumer wanting that experience and the more residents that we had in our community, we saw it as a great opportunity to take that parking lot and really transform it into Kirby's Ice House. But then it, it really activated one city block because right across from there you have uh, uh, Market Street, which is a big retail center with, with fine dining and, and, and retail. And then across the street from that you have the Cynthia Woods Pavilion, which is one of the one of the country's best uh, concert venues. And so within one block now, you can spend a whole day in our community where you can go and, and watch the game and grab a drink at the Ice House. After that, you can go across the street and grab dinner. And then after that, you can go and watch your concert. And hey, if you're a resident, you also have a pretty short commute on the way home. 
So I think that by integrating that throughout all of our communities has been very beneficial. And and the Woodlands has been developing for quite some yeah, time. We're, uh, year number 50. Year number 50. So a lot of the communities that we're working on right now are 3,000, 5,000, 7,000, 10,000 acres. So they have every opportunity to have uh, a Woodlands-like experience of all of that retail. So as planners, we are planning and looking at what that can be or what that will be. Um, it takes several years before that town center aspect of it is added into the communities. But if you look at most of these large master plan communities, there is a town center component, uh, urban center component that is planned in most of them. A lot of them even include some industrial property as well. All right. So that wraps up our panel discussion today. Thank you so much for your time and, and insight. Appreciate it. And so interesting to see where, where it's all going with master plan communities and kind of how it's providing affordable housing to now an increasing number of diverse people. So thank you too for listening. Appreciate it. So I hope that gives you an idea of how leaders in the master plan community world are thinking about some of the biggest challenges in real estate development today. I want to thank you all listeners for tuning in and ask if you like this podcast, please share the episode with a friend. It helps spread our real estate reporting to a wider audience. I want to give a special thank you to the National Association of Real Estate Editors for organizing the panel and the conference, including Ralph Bivens and Mary Doyle Kimball of NARI and the whole NARI team. CGS Digital Marketing has produced video recordings of this panel, as well as other fascinating panels from the conference that were posted on YouTube. I'll post a link on HoustonChronicle.com. Also, special thank you to Howard Hughes, Ginsler, and TBG Partners for lending some of their expertise to this discussion. And thank you to my editors, Jonathan Diamond and Brian Rausch, for allowing me to spend a week exploring real estate topics in Las Vegas. Thank you to Scott Kingsley for editing the audio. And thanks again, listeners, for tuning in. Until next time, 